I'm agnostic. And I'm Laura Barclay, a Baptist minister. And we are Bible Bitches, a podcast where we riff on all things biblical, feminist, and pop culture. Today's fun fact, we're chatting about uh, Sarah recently watched Left Behind with Kirk Cameron, the film. And she noted that, what was it, the, the, the music in it was like a B version of like Backstreet Boys and like the, the current, the, the pop, the pop bands of the early aughts. I would say like B plus. I would say like the B plus version of, um, but like clearly knockoffs of like popular bands at the time, like NSYNC and... So there would be this like real like poppy recognizable tune, but it would have this totally like vanilla ice element where you're like, no, but you can hear this one more beat. Dun 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 dun. dun. You know, like nobody can hear that. That's live. I see what you're doing, but that's just a clear ripoff. Good job, you guys. So it's like smack me, Jesus, one more time or two. <laughs> kind of yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was. And, and Britney Spears's skirt would be completely like below the knee. That is a ankle length denim skirt. <laughs> that, is. that is one with like some all white New Balances. <laughs> of course, of yeah. course it would be that, and that would bring her into compliance with conservative Christian high schools at the time. How is this not a porn genre? How many guys? Seriously, how many guys are like, like have a low key fetish for the long denim skirt now? Ooh, that's a good question. Because like, like with like the ugly tennis shoes though. Yeah. Right. I bet a lot of them do. <laughs> right, because in the conservative Christian like high schools, it was like this was what you wear, and so I won. Yeah, no, it's it's a one. Uh, like I wonder if that's a thing where they're like, I didn't get to see more of her so I want yeah yeah that's a good question I yeah no so I feel like the porn version of that would be a long denim skirt that is like a snap down and he just (laughs) like like, like, the the snap adidas pants that you can exactly (laughs) anyways this is our two-parter Sarah we're in part two of a two-parter on the apocalypse and pop culture Fill us in, Sarah. What What's our recap for the last episode? So, okay. So on this episode, it we are in the second part of a two-part series on the book of Revelations, the apocalypse and pop culture. And we're talking about the apocalypse and pop culture specifically in movies pre and post 9-11, right? So go back and listen to the last one if you haven't. Um, but as a quick recap... We touched on a thesis we found on the old World Wide Web by one Matthew Legat from the University of Winchester in UK called, You've Got to Keep the Faith, Making Sense of Disaster in Post-9-11 Apocalyptic Cinema. He posits that he, quote, uncovers an increased investment in the power of faith in popular American disaster movies after 9-11 in parentheses, so like Book of Eli, Signs, The Road, such films, he argues, interrogate the role that faith plays in making meaning from disaster in ways rarely seen in their immediate precursions, like the 90s, so Independence Day, Armageddon, Godzilla, etc. 
And we begin to poke holes in this by saying that generally apocalyptic horror has shown a deep distrust of humans during periods of unrest. So not just besides 9-11, like after 9-11, but in the 60s and, and other eras whenever there was a deep distrust or sense of uh, critique of government or people in power. From Frankenstein to Night of the Living Dead to Planet of the Apes, art and life imitate one another. The 90s seemed to have been a somewhat idyllic period for Americans with apocalyptic films showcasing humanity's unity, right? We're all joining together and defeating some other. Horror films in the 60s, right? And early aughts don't do this. So it's not just a post 9-11 thing. It's kind of history repeating itself. And so what you see in the 60s and the early 2000s is like a sort of like a really bleak interpretation of life post-apocalyptic. We're going to talk exclusively about movies that have come out after 9-11. And we're going to start with The Road, which was released in 2009. So like eight years ago. Um, and in, in this story, we've reached the end of the world there are a few who are left scavenging and, and they're cannibalistic, right? This dude and his son are just trying to survive after the mom has completed suicide in despair. So there's not a lot of pulling together and like, let's recreate society. Just a lot of like, let's fight this out and like for whatever's for whatever's left. I would argue that it's like it's an interesting, it's like an interesting thing. So like the whole movie is this constant question between like suicide and survival. So the main character has three bullets and the three bullets are supposed to be for his wife, himself, and his son. And he uses the first one on somebody who's coming at them to save his family. His wife gets really upset about that and is like, you've taken away this choice from us kind of deal. And then she dies. And then that leaves these two bullets for this man to make a choice about like, does he kill another to save him and his son, or does he kill himself and or his son in order to save them from the misery of what the future could hold? Long story short, he ends up killing other people to like save himself and his son. And what you're seeing here is like his hope. He is hopeful for the possibility that he can survive, that his son can survive, that he can, you know he can raise a son that can survive on his own. And um, so after the dad finally dies, the son is left sort of like on this beach alone and a man comes up to him and offers to take him sort of like under his wing to be with his family. And of course the boy is like initially skeptical, but decides to go with them in the end. And there's some speculation about like what that part means. Like, is that a vision of him in the future and like it's a statement of like his dad raised him right and like now he can survive and have a family or whatever but regardless like the statement is that you can be in complete despair you can be in confrontation with everything that is trying to literally annihilate you and still have hope and that at the end of the movie there is still hope there is still a family out there who is being kind and open, right? 
Yeah, but there's also like parts throughout the film where I would say it's very, very bleak and the hope is very much in question, which is not as much as if we're going through these periods of time where like the 90s or whatever, where hope is always like we're all resting our hope in the same thing. It's a little bit different, right? And, and that also sounds a lot like The Walking Dead. Like you see this almost like tribalistic sort of thing where the, you have different groups banding together with one another, but against the other groups fighting for resources, right? And I finally declared this last season, I don't know if any of our listeners are still watching Walking Dead, but I finally declared this last season would be my last. I, I really just don't think I can watch any more characters be brutalized and tortured. Not, not in Trump's America. I just, I'm just done. I mean... Like, I'm also glad I'm almost done with Game of Thrones because I don't really think I could take much more like watching some of my favorite characters get offed. Mm. So it's it's very, some of these very apocalyptic shows and movies are, are getting very bleak. And I think a similar vein with The Road, Walking Dead, and Game of Thrones is we're not quite sure where to put our hope, right? We're like, mm. it's it's very tenuous. Yeah, and like from what I was reading, one of the overwhelming themes in apocalyptic movies and literature is this idea that there was this idyllic previous, this idyllic history, and then it's just gotten more chaotic and more chaotic and more chaotic, and and the present is the most chaotic and will only lead to the annihilation of humanity. And that somehow there is a justification there. So, for example, in the book of Eli, 30 years into a nuclear, like a nuked war, I don't think, did they ever actually like say what happened? Because I don't think they did. It's like, it's like post, it's 30 years after some sort of apocalyptic event. So I'm assuming it's a nuked kind of thing, but, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of ash still in the air. Yeah. Denzel Washington is Eli, and he is battling a lot of bandits. He's, he's walking west, and his goal is to protect a book, and the book that you come to find out is the King James Version of the Bible, and I really wanted to discuss this like at length with you, Laura, because there's so many, like, there are elements, elements here. So first of all, it's very heavy-handed with religion, like, Eli is quoting scripture from, you know, Genesis to Revelations to, I want to say, like, Elijah. Like, Eli is trying to get the book to the West Coast because he heard from, like, God that that would be a good thing, that God just told him to go West. Well, and the whole movie is about finding the Bible in this apocalyptic world where every Bible has been burned in order to save, like, humanity from falling Like, what's interesting about that, that, like, there are two people who are aware of this book. There is Eli, who has the book, and there's another man, who is the villain, who's looking for the book because he wants to use it in a way to um, make other people submit to him. He wants to use it as a power play. And what we find out from him in the movie is that the reason why the books, the Bibles were burned before was because they were used in some sort of way to bring about the apocalypse. 
they were all burned and now he wants to use them again as a way to control the masses and i think that that's a direct quote like control the masses and eli is like the good guy and long story short eli ends up relinquishing the bible he goes out west to like a very again heavy-handedly promised land it's all like green and like beautiful and it's like san francisco and um and then like cuts to the bad guy opening the bible and it's all in it's all in braille because eli was blind this whole time and he was walking by faith and not by sight um yeah boom spoiler alert and the end what I was just gonna say, like, can I just quick, like, if the only, if it was the end of the world, and the only copy of the Bible was the King James Version, uh, which for those of you who don't know, is not the most accurate translation, right? And King James was motivated to have the translation, like, favor following earthly lords to quell any civil unrest, which is kind of gross, because it's a little bit authoritarian. That's kind of my vision of purgatory. Like, I want to read the Bible. It's just the KJV version. (laughs) Well, and what's crazy is that, like, he brings it to people who then put it back into print when the narrative so far is that putting it into print was the problem. Well, I, okay, so I, I kind of like it. And this is why, like, I, I think there are some problems with the movie, but I think what it was almost, I wonder if what it was trying to do was kind of highlight the difference between like how the North and the South used the, um, used the Bible, like in the Civil War, but right, because like the South, it was like, they were like, um, interpreting and proof texting parts of the Bible by saying that the Bible supported slavery. Um, whereas the North was like, uh, no, have you, have you cracked a book? And slaves um in the south very much had a you know different view of the bible because they had heard of the book of exodus which was very much about you know freeing uh slaves that's kind of the whole point love justice and freedom right um so in the film there is like this kind of rebellion um of intellectualism and freedom versus the brutish cannibalistic henchmen in the in the movie um and i kind of like that it sort of advocates this sense of like biblical literacy on the positive side which you don't see a lot and i'm kind of like as a progressive christian i'm like okay i see what you're doing and i kind of like it like it's not a great film but i like the attempt and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna give it a li- i'm just gonna give it a point for that yeah i know it <laughs> So I'm just gonna give it a point for that. <laughs> Are you okay? What was that? I'm glad you asked, Sarah. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Uh, it's a shofar. <laughs> it's a big fucking horn. My uh, my friend uh, Ben Goldenberg let me borrow one of. He had a spare shofar, and fun thing about that is uh, I have this to blow. Um, (laughs) because it's like in revelation the seventh angel sounded the shofar 
and there were loud voices in heaven that said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will rule forever. And then they blew the shofar. Holy shit, you did really good that time. Thank you. I've been practicing. Um, I was going to blow it at yeah. some point during the podcast. She got, she got strong lips. I mean, you I still like okay, but I still don't like fully understand the message. It just seems so contradictory. Where like the villain is trying to get the Bible in order to do what he saw happening, which is controlling the masses, right? And the way that masses were controlled were by having many copies of this book. And so, knee-jerk reaction after this is to burn all the books. Guy wants to find it because he saw how powerful it was, and Eli comes in. And is like, uh, I got it all up here in my memory, and now I'm just gonna go make sure that it gets printed again. I kind of wonder if it was how it was interpreted or how it was used. I don't know. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's the implication is that like it's about whose hand it gets into, but I still, I still think that that's kind of like logically fallacious because. It creates this very like us versus them scenario where Eli somehow is, he has anointed himself or has been anointed to be like the person to take care of the Bible. And that's the kind, that's like a very, that's like, in my opinion, that is a very problematic idea that comes from a very old Christian tradition that some people are able and like worthy of interpreting the text and other people are not. Well, I think, okay, two things. I think that the setup between an us versus them, the mentality might may in this case be reflected by the civil war. Right. And that this actually did happen in our own history. And yeah, but this movie came out in 2009. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I definitely think that, we can still talk about how the civil war has, I, I, I still don't think our nation has gotten over the civil war. Yeah. Right. I mean, and the fact that in the South, there's still some people who fly Confederate flags, right. There's still very much an us versus them mentality among some Southerners who, who view South as synonymous with Confederacy, which I would say I am someone who is from the South that does not <laughs> view it that way. So I think that's one dynamic. Two would be that I I get the concern about someone being like anointed to carry the Bible, but I also do believe in a sense of calling, right? That people are prophets or can be sort of called to do something important. And but I think that that's open to anybody who wants to who wants to take that up. So yeah. I mean, I, I, like, I'm not saying this movie is stellar by any means. It's been, I think I saw it when it came out, which was like nine, eight or nine years ago. So I don't really remember everything that was wrong with it. I wasn't super enthralled with it when I saw it by any means, but I, I don't really have anything against the concept of someone feeling like, Hey, you know, I feel like I am being like called to this or that as long as it's because I think the check here is, is it a, is it a mission of love justice and freedom and if it is not then it's not of god so i feel like how what freedom looks like in a post-apocalyptic narrative 
is very different. Mayhap. Because like how I define freedom is based on a set of rights that I believe I am entitled to. I don't know that you would disagree with the fact that someone could print a book though. No, no, no. That's not, that's not where I'm going with this. Okay. So like I live in a society where we all adhere to this, you know, the social contract, right? But the way that like what is happening in a, like in the narrative, the general narrative of the post-apocalyptic life is that there is no longer any social contract or that the social contract is not so is not so well enforced. So a body, like an actual body is still in play, right? Force is 100% in play and is necessary. And that's a very different kind of freedom than the kind of freedom that I take for granted, right? Like Mm -hmm. I, and so having like- Freedom isn't free, Sarah? No, but you know what I mean. Like love, love, justice, and freedom are things that happen in a society where there are luxuries already available, where like the luxury of not having to worry about trust, for example. Like we, we all have to worry about trust, but like I don't have to worry about, I don't have to like worry about in an everyday kind of way, like being beaten up and or raped and or put to death and or like any of these things on my way to work or walking out on the street. But in these post-apocalyptic worlds, that is something that you seriously have to think about. That is a very different kind of freedom. And therefore that will affect the way that you perceive justice and love. I think it would look different. I mean, I think you would definitely be more worried about self-defense in a post-apocalyptic scenario. Hence Denzel Washington's super intense self-defense skills in the, in the, in the, Book of Eli. Um, I wanted to note also, because <laughs> I know our next film that we're going to talk about is Signs. Spoiler alert. Um, did you know that Mel Gibson is making a sequel to Passion of the Christ? And I'm not sure what about what. I haven't had time to look it up, but is this like Too Fast, Too Furious? Like even more passion and more Christ. Like wh- what... I don't know. I didn't see the first Passion of the Christ. You're lucky. <laughs> I, I think my star is every day. Do you remember, okay, so Ludacris did a fair amount of music for Too Fast, Too Furious. And I, because I think he was in it. I've, I have only seen, I think, one of the Fast and Furious movies. Um, and I remember that the lyrics were like, too fast, too furious, too fast for y'all. So would it be like, too, too much passion? too much cries, too much cries for y'all. Like, <laughs> what is the music even going to be like for this movie? I have, I don't, I don't know. I have so many questions. I know. I assume Kurt Cameron will be involved. <laughs> One could only hope. Actually, you know what? I bet he isn't because Mel Gibson is Catholic and Kurt Cameron is Protestant. And can I just want to watch a fisticuffs between the two of them, like a verbal fisticuffs. I would love to see them neg each other, just like, you know, God really loves you. And I know that one day you'll see that. 
kind of thing. You're like, oh. it's, just like, it's just like an hour of passive aggressiveness. Just, yeah. <laughs> I would, I would watch that. I would watch that hard. Uh, okay. So speaking of Mel Gibson, uh, so this thesis that this guy wrote also covers signs, uh, which stars Mel Gibson. Um, so this is less people fighting with one another and more that Gibson is grumpy as fuck after losing his wife who dies in a car accident and states swing away as she dies, which appears not to make any sense. Um, in M. Night Shyamalan fashion, this ends up foreshadowing a way to defeat aliens who invade later. This movie was dated to 2002 and was actually filmed in 2001. So I'm really not sure how much of an impact 9-11 had on the script. So like it made more of a kind of like the 90s sort of uh, hopeful film and others that were made after the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, and post 9-11, like that kumbaya sort of spirit had, had worn off and it was more like you can't trust other people. Yeah, I was actually really looking that up, and the only date that I could find is that they started filming on September 12th, 2001. So the script was already done. Yeah, so the script was already, like, fully done. I didn't see any, like, undertones of terrorism, like, but I... Yeah, I just don't, like it, I don't get it as much because, because, yeah, it seemed to me like it was more like one grumpy dude who is sort of swayed by faith and less, less that it was like humanity fighting itself versus, versus it kind of fed in more of like, this is an other sort of thing, like humanity versus another. Um, yeah, well, I mean, like he comes back to his faith at the end. Right. Yeah. He's like, oh, there aren't any coincidences. It's, it's like all preordained. Ugh. I lost a lot of interest with that movie. That was a movie that I was like, like constantly checking the time and being like, are we done yet? <laughs> like, like, I, yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of, I think it's kind of boring. I've only seen it once and that was a long time ago and I was not into it. So we've kind of shown that the later movies, like post 9-11, reflect the bleakness of the atmosphere of where America might be. Marshall Fine, author and film critic, states in an article called Waiting for the End of the World, um, dated to June 11th, 2014, um, on hollywoodandfine.com. He says, which is why um, in books, movies, and TV, post-apocalyptic post societies are always Darwinian. That may be the real message here, that we are, however tentatively and tenuously, still a civilization of thinking people, because we don't need to kill our neighbors to save ourselves, but we're just one disaster away from atavism, rearing its ugly head, and then suddenly it's kill or be killed. That's obviously a powerful idea to use as a metaphor, and it can be teased out in all sorts of directions, whether politically, philosophically, or otherwise. Just as alien invasion movies and sci-fi monster tales supposedly allow us to confront our fears about real life issues, take your pick, so do these post-end of day stories force us to confront our worries about what we are turning into right now as individuals, as a nation, as a planet. Do you agree with that? I think that this is a fear. At our worst, we're Darwinian. That we're, that when it's like social Darwinism is the worst we could possibly be. That the survival of the fittest, right? It's like a Lord of the Flies, like, you know, the strongest is going to survive. And that's the thing that we're the most afraid of in these horrible times. Like, at the times whenever we're most 
highly critical, like, you know, like we talked about sort of in the 60s and then post 9-11 that we're sort of worried about how humanity will react to crisis because we don't trust each other, right? Because in the post 9-11 world and in the 60s, there is a, a deep distrust of, uh, of different tiers of society, right? Like how, how are the people of privilege or how are people outside of our tribe gonna react in this scenario? So I think at our worst, we're social Darwinians. At our best, we have a sense of hope, like, okay, how can we rebuild society? How can we all come together? How can we cross that bridge? How can we try to get back to a sense of civility? Um, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what I, I don't know. I think that might be the difference and why the films are, di are different in different eras. I, so, and again, like, I am not so well versed in Darwinianism, but how is Darwinianism, like, without hope? So social Darwinism is that it really is the survival of the fittest. The strongest will survive. And Darwin tended, the, there's two strands of Darwin, Darwinism, right? Like, one is, oh, good, he was able to sort of see evolution and, like, I have a question. hands going up. Oh, good. Okay, question. <laughs> like, what is that no, my question is like, is did he define what the fittest was? Because like now we find ourselves in a position where there are a lot of different ways that quote unquote being the fittest could mean very different, you know, very different things. And like I'm not trying to like put you on the spot. We can cut all of this out. I I am Googling it because I well because I know that part of the um this was Dar like Darwin's ideas on evolution tended to be built upon. Social Darwinianism was kind of thwarted because I think there was sort of a aspect of racism involved in that. Oh, because um, eugenics. Right, right. Like there was there was so, that would, so that would imply that there's like a, a like a very physical aspect to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's very dangerous because if you're kind of saying like certain people are more enlightened than others, then you're really kind of hitting a huge problem. Yeah, uh, well, like, and, and, and also like a really boring short-sightedness, right? Like, an, yeah. a, a, like a misunderstanding of the way that so well, many... Right, well, and it's also kind of like, my understanding is that it was also sort of kind of linked with justification for slavery. So mm. this is this is sort of the problem with the idea of social Darwinianism. And that's where I get like really kind of skeeved out with some of the aspects of, like I totally get that a walking dead scenario, if you have that happen, like let's say you have a catastrophic end of the world event and people are trying to figure out how to survive afterwards, they're going to divide up into tribes. Like, that's just how humans work. But the danger is if you totally buy into social Darwinian theory that the strongest are the ones that are going to survive, each tribe can decide what that looks like, exactly like what you said. Like, that's the danger, right? That each tribe can sort of decide what, what does that mean? Is the strongest muscle? Is it brains? Is it race is it gender is it what what is that what does that look like i would you know what i would say if we're going by the kind of um what is it the hierarchy of needs 
Mm-hmm. I could definitely see that the social Darwinism idea very quickly devolving into or like enmeshing into the hierarchy of needs. So like the person who can get you the things that you need the most in the moment being like hot buttered noodles. Being the hot butter God fucking hot butter noodles. Uh, hot butter noodles. You like yeah, you just like freshly grind some fucking pepper pepper on there and some salt. Whoever can do that for me in the apocalypse, I'm gonna be yeah. like, I'm like you're the king or queen of my society. Fucking, <laughs> <laughs> they're so good. It's so good. I I feel I really feel like that's gonna be my if the apocalypse happens, my post-apocalyptic addiction is gonna be carbs. So whoever can get me delicious, delicious carbs, they can rule my society. <laughs> So I feel like we need to wrap this up, but there's there's so much left. Like, can we just make this an October thing? Yeah, we're always going to revisit Revelation. Next year, can we talk about comedies? Because I really wanted to get to, like, this is the end. And uh, mm-hmm. what is it? What is the, the guy who does Shaun of the Dead? He, they did, like, the end of the world or something. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. The where they're all, like, drinking beer and the different... Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so much stuff with the apocalypse. We're gonna revisit this every October. It's too thick and too fun not to. I okay. I, here's what I want to pause it. I want to hear from folks. What are your favorite like apocalyptic genre films, shows, pop culture nougats? Like what? What do you like? Um, and also, what are your favorite sort of like aspects of Revelation? I like the lady riding the dragon. I like the seven bowls because I like soup a lot. You like bowls and scrolls. I like bowls and scrolls. I like to read and eat soup. That's that's what she's got on her Tinder profile. She's like, <laughs> I like bowls and I like scrolls. I, coincidentally, have the highest swipe left percentage of all of LA. False. <laughs> well but the highest among ladies riding dragons <laughs> they're like swipe right swipe right bulls and scrolls bulls and scrolls <laughs> okay do we have any listener mail oh good call we do have listener mail i i was so tickled over bulls and scrolls i'm just forgetting all the things over here. Um, I am super pumped because um, two episodes ago um, was Judas, and um, we talked about Gnosticism, and we had a good hearty debate, and if you haven't heard it, please go back and listen. It's a, it's a lot of fun about Gnosticism, and someone on Twitter named uh, Rainbow, um, you can find her at hacker underscore horse, hacker underscore horse messaged me um, letting me know that she's actually a follower of Gnosticism and there are Gnostic churches um, that are still in existence. That is a thing I did not know and I was very excited. And so she told me about her experience with Gnosticism and actually invited me to be able to um, come to her church the next time I am out in California. There are two, I think, congregations out there 
Firestone Gnostic Church of Sophia, and there is also the Gnostic Sanctuary. So Firestone Gnostic Church of Sophia and Gnostic Sanctuary. I'm not sure exactly where they're located, um, but that's really exciting. So um, if anybody has any questions um, about that and wants to visit, I'm sure they have a website, so you could Google those um, and also follow um, at hacker underscore horse. Um, because there are still Gnostics worshiping out there. And so that's kind of exciting 2000 years later. It's fucking awesome. Right? I was really pumped. I ha- she was like really awesome enough to have like, I don't know, like a one or two hour discussion with me about her experience with Gnosticism. And she similarly to me had had a very conservative upbringing and kind of gone away from it and then found Gnosticism. And I was just like, so excited that she was sharing her story with me. So it's very cool. Um, yeah. And if you have had a good experience with Gnosticism, I was very clear with her that I'm very critical of it on the, the Judas episode because from an academic standpoint, if someone has a, has a personal experience with something, I want to hear about it. Like, I'm very curious. Like, I separate academic stuff and personal faith experience. Like, I'm just super pumped to hear about people's stories. So if you want to share with Sarah or I or the Bible Bitches Twitter handle, um, you can DM us and we would just love to like hear your experiences. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh my God. That's that that was like a really genuinely awesome moment. To... I was so pumped. It made my day. <laughs> yeah. It was fucking awesome. Yeah, I just love it. I just love hearing people's stories. It's so fun. I know it's so good, and then to like interact with it, and then to yeah. like be able to get that extra dimension on an idea. Like it's so good. Yeah, yeah. like you think something kind of died like two thousand years ago, and it isn't dead. Like there's this thing that's going on. You're like, oh my god, that's so exciting. Like I, if the next time I come to California, I'm totally, I totally want to hear from these churches and like. It's, uh, it's so exciting. When are you coming to California next? I want to come soon, Sarah. Get your fucking ass out here. You, yeah, hey, you know what? People, people want to contribute on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Bible Witches Podcast. That will get me out to California and we can do some live shows. <gasps> yeah. Shows you want to be a honorary Bible bitch and get some pretty cool swag. That's how you can do it. Yeah. Uh, and Patreon.com backslash Bible bitches podcast. That's right. Also, if you're listening to this and you have no idea how you got here, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher to get regular awesome uh, every other week content from us. Yeah, or you can hit us up on um, Twitter at our handle at Bible Bitches, or you can check out our fan page on um, Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash Bible Bitches. And we want to give a huge shout out to Engaged Gays. They are our host website, and they're amazing. That's G-A-Z-E. Oh, yeah, sorry. G-A-Z, Engaged Gays, G-A-Z-E. So y'all check it out. There's a lot of great content on there. And then we love you, Yo Eves, for providing our intro and outro music. We love you. We love your new album. You're such a fucking badass. We love you. And also um, Aaron Doodles. That is at Aaron Doodles on Twitter. 
and that guy is fucking amazing he is giving us the bet like he's the best he's, he's giving us doing the artwork just doing all the artwork he's doing he is putting up with all of our bullshit with the artwork <laughs> essentially is what he's a whole doing. lot of grace you know yeah. what Aaron doodles i'm gonna give you a big shofar uh shout out. <laughs> that was very stately thank you and well deserved all right, you guys, we love you and thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you and hope you tune in next week. And slide into our DMs, yo. It's too sexual. It, I'm going to pull some of that back. You just, if you want to slide into our DMs in a completely non-sexual way. We love you. Bye. Bye.